Dawson, dear. Yes, Natalie. It is time for another episode of Romantic Truth. Gina, start the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Terminator activated. We welcome you to the Romantic Truth podcast. The content of this podcast is intended for an adult audience due to the nature of sensitive subject matter and topics. Share the experience of Romantic Truth with friends on Google, CastBox, Spotify, Podcast Addict, Radio Public, Breakers, Apple, or any other podcast platform. Just type in Romantic Truth in the search and subscribe. Now, here is the host of Romantic Truth, Jowson. Hi everyone, it's March 21st, 2022, and let's get to it. Now, have you ever had an experience where, for some reason, you were treated poorly by an individual, for no no apparent reason whatsoever? We'll say, you know, you fellas, how you walk up to a lady and talk to her, and she's got that disposition, that attitude, and she's like, well, what the hell do you want? Why are you here in my face? What do you have to offer me? That type of thing. And you haven't done anything but said hello to her. Now, of course, there's a plethora of things that could be going on inside of her that you are not knowledgeable of. And therefore, you're just coming in on a hot stove, so to speak. You don't know why she's upset, why she's angry. And you may question, is it her or is it me? What did I do? Right? I was faced with a situation like this one time when I went out. There's a lady I talked to, and man, let me tell you, I said hello, and it was like I stepped on a landmine. She said, you N-words are all the same, y'all ain't about nothing, da-da-da-da-da, cussing me out and everything. And after she did it, she folded her arms, rolled her eyes, and looked away. And so, a couple of guys were laughing at the bar. And I came back to the bar and I just said, don't know what's going on with her. And a couple of guys told me, they said, man, look, we tried saying hello to her and we got the same thing. It's not you, it's her. Now, with that affirmation, what happened? There were two people in there, those two guys that already knew her disposition. Three of us together completed the consensus. So, what happened was they got another person in their coffers to agree with them that definitely was her. As other guys tried to talk to this lady, they got the same disposition. And before you know it, it was about five or six of us that were like that. And we didn't take it personally, none of us did, because we knew that she had issues. Now, Here's the interesting thing. When her girlfriends got there, you start seeing her smile, laugh, joke around. The interesting thing was this. The guys asked the girlfriends of hers to dance. There was about eight of them that came in. Every one of them had a guy on the floor dancing with them, except that one. 
because people had observed the way she had behaved and no one wanted to dance with her. And what she started doing was going around asking guys to dance and guys were turning her down. And of course that fueled her frustration. She went back to the booth and sat there. Not one guy, even the new guys that came into the club, danced with that woman that night. And of course she had some horrible things to say about the club, the people, you know, she's loud and everything. And she was wondering why. Because people observed her behavior, word spread about her. And that was her punishment. Isolation. The rest of the girlfriends, they had changed numbers with, they exchanged numbers with guys. They had the guys over buying them drinks, having a wonderful time. And she's sitting there with her arms folded. Now, what was interesting, one of the ladies came over to the bar with one of the guys that was with her. And I said, well, your friend really, you know, she must be upset about something. She said, no, she's always like that. She treats us the same way when she gets in that mood. I said, oh, okay. She says, trust me, you don't want to go over there. She's a basket case. Now, by her telling me something of that sort, and the rest of the guys chuckled when the lady was telling us this, we realized, hey, we made the right choice by not messing with them. These are the kind of women that will say they're intimidating towards men. She wasn't intimidating. She had a caustic personality. Nobody wanted to be bothered with it. She was toxic. Just to say hello, you get cussed out, wasn't worth it. True enough, there could have been a host of things going on in her mind. But it reaffirmed what the other two guys had said being that her friend was treated the same way she was. The way, I mean, the way we were. So what that meant in essence was that she didn't value them either. And so what happened, she paid the price. It was funny because as soon as the lights came on in the club and it was time to close, she was the first person to grab her purse and say, I'm leaving. You all going to come on or what? And she walked out guess what? Her girlfriends didn't bother her. They started walking out with these other men that they had met in the club. Sometimes people will go and have their clout extended to a certain point and then not realize that you can only treat people so badly so long in so many ways and then you start to lose them. And this is exactly what she had done in this situation. She had isolated herself. Because here's the problem. No matter what, she didn't like herself. You folks talk about self-haters, about black men and women dating out of the race of self-haters. Those are not self-haters. 
A self-hater is a person like the woman I described in this incident. She hated who she was. She hated how she came across the people. And therefore, she expected, because her friends came in, that that was going to be the key to open up her being liked by other men. And that didn't take place. She had already ruined her reputation there. So, let's think about those five principles I always talk about. She had her freedom, but she used and exploited to diss me along other guys, along with other guys, along other guys, right? And then, when it came down to her wealth, no guys bought her drinks, she had to buy her own drinks. When it came to her mobility, she went around the room trying to ask guys to dance and nobody wanted to dance with her. So she was stationary, stuck in that particular spot because nobody wanted to deal with her, not even the new guys that walked in. When it came down to her decision-making skills, she had none because she couldn't even have the choice of dissing any more men. Because after she dissed me, everybody heard it. Last, reputation. She had a bad reputation in there. Nobody wanted to even talk to her, deal with her, not even her friends. They came in there, greeted her, and those men came over to talk to those women. That booth was cleared out. They were on the dance floor 90% of the time the whole night. She sat there. That's how it impacts things. So what you have, in essence, is a person that's so angry with themselves that this is what they wind up doing, isolating themselves. Even though behaviorally they want to intermingle but they realize they've torn their bridges. And they're thinking, I guess, that, oh, well, we're just going to ignore the way you dissed those other guys. They did. Now, here's the thing. This was when men had respect for themselves. Now, today, a simp, simple, impotent male prototype will go over there and try to appease her and lay down like a lap dog and let her dog him out and talk about him and treat him like the soil under her feet just so that he can curry favor. Back then, now, once the men saw that, it was like, nah, we, we, we're not going to deal with that. Uh-uh. She's odd person out. Even the ugliest woman in that club was on the dance floor dancing. The fattest woman on the dance floor dancing. And this woman was mighty attractive. But they made it a point to avoid her. Not because they were intimidated by her, because they pitied her. 
And this is something that happens. This is a dynamic that you will face sometimes in dating. You will find people like that. And the best way to do is to best thing to do is to avoid them. Exile them. And when you've done that, this shows the limitations of their so-called power. They don't have any. So that power and authority they had to diss you is countered by isolation and exile. Plain and simple. You know, it's like um, a radio show I used to listen to years ago. This particular host, and it was not on a major uh, distribution network, but what would happen is, in this small town out of Southern California, he used to always berate people. And the problem was, it was never done in a sense of uh, informing someone or helping someone along. He would just literally do it because he was mean. At first, it was amusing and entertaining, and people would call in. And then what started to happen, people quit doing so. And he'd open up the phone lines, nothing would happen. And when he got somebody on there to be a kid or something like that, or somebody that misdialed, and then eventually, he did away with the phone uh, call-ins. Then it got to a point where he started talking about subjects that didn't really matter, totally irrelevant. What he wanted, what he thought was important because he had lost touch with his listeners and his audience. Then eventually, they pulled the show. But to watch him on that downward spiral, because in the beginning, he was pretty tough on people. And of course, that went over pretty well for a while. But then he became very vicious and very mean. And the way his listeners and audience countered was to not listen to him anymore. Now, here's the thing. If a person has an obvious nonsensical argument, you will get that consensus of people listening and say, hey, that person's not all there. Or maybe they didn't really think this through. And they're listening and they're forming opinions and they're agreeing with the host a lot of times. That's understandable. When it gets to a point, though, where you're attacking the very people that are calling in with issues and problems, that's when you go across the line. That's when you actually are doing them a disservice. And that's when narcissism is kicking in. And that's what happened to him. And it cost him a career because he could never get on another station afterwards. These things will happen, folks. But the one thing to remember is never get full of yourself because people can get full of you and tired of you very quickly. The moral of this particular story is 
Watch how you treat people. Because they may not forgive you for what you've done. And they may form opinions of you. And even if they're valid or not valid, they're still their opinions. And they're going to act and behave according to the way you treated them. More in a moment. All right, let's talk about cognitive bias. Control, in other words, the illusion of control. Now, this is something people face every day in relationships. You get in a situation where you don't feel as though you have that, and many times this actually works against you in so many ways because being in control can actually thwart your goal I'll show you what I mean in a minute but let's go back to when I went to the MBA program in international business at Western International University they had this survival test and they usually give it to many MBA students and it's about prioritization of components. The hypothetical was in a plane and while in this plane, it goes down. Now, the plane lands in a desolate area. And we have to figure out what things that we can salvage from the wreck that would be important for our survival. We're on a desert island. So we look at things such as a mirror, 10 gallons of water, uh, two pairs of sunglasses, a raincoat, a jacket, several MREs, a compass, a map, and an inflatable life raft. Now there's no landmass to be seen in any direction but the island that we landed on that's about a mile and a half long and about maybe a half mile wide. Now the thing is the ocean, when the tide comes in, it takes up a lot of that. So setting up camp on the shoreline has to be temporary. Because what happens, of course, the tide comes in, there's less of the land mass in order to stay dry on. All right, in this situation, you have a mirror as well. And these are some of the only things you're left with. And there were some other things that they had mentioned in that exam, in that little test that they gave us. Now, what we had to do was pick out the things that we were going to use and pick out what we were going to do as a strategy 
with those items that we would use. So, many of the people chose taking the boat, putting those components on the boat, and going out to sea to try to find a ship or to be a little bit more visible to any kind of aircraft or ship that came by. Now, the other option, which I took, was to stay on the island, use the raincoat as some sort of cover from the hot sun. Now, the logical approach would have probably been for most people, hey, you know what, I gotta get off this damn island. I gotta go and try to get saved by someone. Made sense for some people. However, for me, along with several others who saw it differently, it was best to stay in place so that if something were to fly over, such as a plane or such as a ship, you did not have to worry about your livelihood out there on the ocean. With all of those components in there, yeah, you have food and everything, but you're still subjected to the tide. You're still subjected to the fact that you may be taken out well beyond the scope of where your plane went down. Meaning that research crew, well, search crews rather, research crews, are going to look for you in that particular area your plane went down. And it's highly likely that they would find you near the wreckage. As opposed to out to sea where they probably will miss you. This was the problem for many of them on this particular test, survival skills test. A lot of them failed because they had this false sense of control. I'm going to go take the boat, go out into the ocean, and I'm going to find a ship, or I'm going to find a landmass, I'm going to find something. I'm going to go out there and go fishing. I'm going to go out there and do something. Now, the reason why I bring this up is because you remember I always talk about the 18 to 25 demographic making the biggest mistakes in their lives? Usually, this is why they do it. They want to affirm their control. And they go out in life and they don't really think things through. They have that cognitive bias of being in control. I'm not gonna let this happen to me. I'm gonna control the situation. So my goal is to control it and survive the situation. And what happens a lot of times, they will wind up losing. Now, what did help me was I was in the Marine Corps and helped train people on survival. So that did help me a lot. It was an asset, a plus. That's the reason why I chose to stay put. A lot of the other people that didn't know, they let their cognitive bias take over. Now, they had the illusion of control. And this is what you have to figure out. And this is what ladies, men do a lot. We have to determine what is the best decision to be made 
in the best interest of everybody associated with us. So now, let's put this in the context of a relationship or in our everyday lives. Have you ever noticed people drive faster on the freeway if they're late for something, late for work? As if they can control the clock by speeding themselves up. If they're late, they're late. You get on an elevator and you constantly mash the button. When you only have to touch it one time, it's already lit. Why are you still stabbing it? It's not going to go any faster. It's not going to do anything more than it should do. But we do this out of anxiety. We do this out of control in some sense. We think we are in control of something by doing it. This is how we treat people sometimes. We mash that button. Say the same thing over and over, trying to get our point across. person heard you the first time. Going into a cyclical process of repeating yourself does nothing. It just makes you feel better. Because you're relieving that emotional frustration, but it has absolutely nothing to do with the impact on that other person. You're wasting your time. If your comment initially had an impact on them, they would have responded in a way of addressing it. Apparently it did not, so they went past that. That should be a clue for you. Now, another thing to understand about this situation. With this sort of control, it's also based on boredom and complacency, the perception thereof. You have a lot of these people that are activists and want to have movements started and all these things. But they don't think through the mechanics. A lot of times the very thing that they're talking about that they hate so much and despise so much are the very things they depend on in order to have their messages delivered. If a person is pro-black and they're talking about how the white man has done them wrong and how we need to be more independent, etc., etc., they fail to realize they're speaking on a platform that was designed by whites. The currency they use is that printed by whites. The country they live in. The company that financed their house or apartment. So they really don't have a leg to stand on in that argument. So, when we put it in the context of <clears throat> put it in the context of a relationship you look at these people who have to constantly do something in order to feel as though they're in control oh let's relocate to so and so why is that oh the rent will be cheaper and we'd have more control over the situation what, over, just because the rent is low now? Doesn't mean you have any control over something. It means that more than likely what will happen is you'll expose yourself into an environment with new challenges that you haven't really thought through. Going by what someone else tells you 
about a situation doesn't tell you the full story on how they had to adjust. We just go based on their bias. Oh yeah, come on down, there's no problem. Then you get there and then you realize, okay, well, why are the roads so bad? Uh, why are the schools so horrible? Why are the textbooks so old in the school? Why doesn't the city have money for clean water? Why is the city running a deficit? But you want to go there for cheaper rent. But then think about the other logistical concerns. Not realizing that where you are with the higher rent Eventually, they'll hit a price point, a saturation point, and the prices would have to go down because people won't pay. And once that occurs, things go back to normal. They peak for certain reasons, and then they flatten out. Now, a lot of you are saying, well, you know, no, it's always high, it's going to stay high. Not really. See, what you have to remember is this. When you're in the business of making money, you're only going to go as far as you can go as to what that consumer will pay. And after they realize that they've kind of stepped out of the boundaries of what people would pay you that are rational they'll reel it back in because they know if they keep doing that they're going to have more vacancies and with more vacancies there are more problems for you financially the market will dictate that think about the housing crisis back in 2008 and you had all these exorbitant prices and homes were just ridiculously priced and they were saying, oh, the prices are still going to go up. They're going to continue to go up. And what happened? The bubble burst. The market crashed. Prices normalized. And now many of you are saying, well, what about now? Well, we have inflation, that inflation bubble. For those of you who don't remember, this is the reason why George Bush Sr. was ousted out of office with the voters because we experienced inflation during that time and Clinton came in and fortunately for Clinton he had at the wind in his back the technology boom now the same thing is happening here this inflation is not permanent it's temporary reason being is because even with the high prices these industries know that they will not have consumers if they keep it up people will always improvise and do without as opposed to paying see we say that we have to have things it's because we're saying this because we're comfortable with having things but when we don't really need things and we have to make that decision like on a desert island where you have to make the decision on what you'll need what you want it's the same principle 
And when they start doing this, they start to realize, hey, we're going to have to listen to our consumers and bring things back. And then there's always someone who can do things cheaper that comes in and then they comfort the market back to the consumer. I want you to think about when cell phones first came out. LA Cellular charged, it was not, not uncommon to have a $1,900 bill sometimes. But what happened? As the technology improved, prices got down lower. Because people look at better ways of doing things cheaper. Think about the banks, where the banks, you had all these fees from the major banks. Now you have these online banks where you don't have any fees. And it's more of a pleasurable banking experience. That's the one thing that we have going for us in America more so than anything. There's always someone to figure out, how do I get to that middle working class individual how do I get to that person? How do I make it more practical for them? There's always someone in your corner thinking that way. Because they know long term they're going to make more money than these people who are doing the spikes. That's the way it goes. And eventually, those who were so comfortable making all this money realize they have to reel, reel in some of their prices. Some of that overhead. Now, how does this relate to relationships? With this control that people have the illusion that they have, they try to impose it in different ways on their partners. Let's relocate for a better deal. And many times they use this as a way of deflecting responsibility. They move to a town, run up their bills, ruin their credit. They want to relocate to somewhere else so they can do the same thing over and over again. They're running away from responsibility. Used to see it a lot in LA. Meet a woman, very nice lady, and then what would happen? Hey, you know what? LA's too expensive. I'm thinking about moving to Texas. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, I want you to come with me. Why is that? Well, it's cheaper to live down there. But not mentioning she had lived in Maryland, Virginia, Chicago, different places. By the time she's got here, her credit history is horrible. And you think I would trust moving with an irresponsible person to another location? Get real. These are things and factors you have to look at. You ladies that relocate for men, I tell you all the time, if you have property or house or something like that, don't sell it. Lease it. Do whatever you need to do, but keep it. Because if it comes down to you divorcing this person, you will always have a place called home. A lot of you ladies, for some reason, you get married, you're selling your house, and you're looking at it from the standpoint I'm with him now marriage dissolves and now you're living in an apartment where you could have gone back home and had your house 
See, this control thing, you got to look for the triggers that make you feel so insecure that you have to be in control. That's key. You're in a relationship with someone and you have to be in control because something happened in your past relationship that you're afraid of happening in this one. And you have all these rules and safeguards up and standards. But that's not good enough, even though the person has met all the criteria. You gotta go and assert some sort of control. Meaning that you have to do something in order to feel as though you're not doing nothing. And sometimes this works to your detriment. And this is what I'm getting at. Relationships going fine. You have some person say, you know what? Uh, it's boring. We should argue more. That right there is a red flag for you guys to get out of the relationship. When she's serious about that, there's a good possibility she's going to manufacture a nonsensical argument. You guys are going to get involved and it's going to go too far at one of those times. And then you're going to be stuck with something that you didn't sign up for. Just to help you. But what I'm getting at, overall folks, is that if you have a goal to have a successful relationship and you have to be in control and what you do is do something that's totally irrational, erratic, and counterintuitive because you feel as though complacency is a bad thing. See, we've been conditioned in America to feel as though if you're doing nothing that you're lazy. Every American hates that term, being lazy. And why is this? Because it's a negative connotation. After slavery, what did many racists call black people? Call them lazy. But what you have to realize is this. The reason being was to put them on a lower social plane than anyone else so that they remained in control by just saying those words, which meant that people wouldn't hire them in many instances because of that, because of the stigma associated with them. That wasn't valid. It was just it. And so with this mindset, people will try to do this with others in order to discredit them. But see, we're taught here in America to not be lazy, to be a workaholic. We work more than any other country for the most part. 40 hours a week, and we get, what, two weeks off? In Europe, they laugh at us. Some get 38 days off. Some get 45 days off. And we sit here, working our asses off, for what? Nothing, really. Because see, America's been prone to cheap labor, and free labor, and child labor at one point. And we had to grow out of all of those cycles. 
and even though the very party Republicans that tell you that they're tough on immigration, their constituents in these large corporations and these factories want to still make sure that immigrants are able to come into the United States to work for cheaper than Americans do. Again, they speak out of both sides of their mouths. So, what happens with many Americans? They work a job for 20 years, they retire, and then they feel as though they gotta still keep working and they go out and take out part-time jobs and they keep continuing to work because they have been brainwashed to constantly do that because they don't want to be considered lazy. Where in actuality, nobody gives a damn how hard you work. You know, it was funny. I remember during the interview process, we would have applicants come in. They would say, well, I'm a hard worker. As if that's supposed to distinguish them from anyone else. It's like hell, that's just like saying you have two feet. Everybody says that. It means nothing. See, Americans have been very good at working hard, but not working smart. And that's been the problem. Because if they were working smart, many of these tech jobs, many of these medical jobs, many of these engineering jobs, they would have gone to school to fill them. But they want that sense of control. That's the reason why families still condition their kids to go out and get a job. They'll tell them that first before they tell them to go out and get an education and then get the job. Because with that strategy, you have more of a longevity in the workplace and make more money where you could actually change the dynamic of your family's economic history instead of just getting a job and working at Walmart for 20 or 30 years. And then piling on all the responsibilities of life, such as kids, wedding, marriage, family, and all the rest of that, and struggle. And then think you're doing pretty well at $50,000 a year at 45 years of age. Well, you could have started at that rate with a college degree somewhere else. See, one of the problems is Americans don't challenge themselves. They're conservative on some things, but they're liberal on others. They're conservative on spending money for their education because they feel as though they're not worth the investment, so they don't do it. But yet, they will go out and spend that same amount of money that they would have paid for a college education on an automobile, on a dress, on clothing, on other external things to make them more attractive. Again, not paying attention to the core issue themselves first. Investing in themselves. And this is based on the misguided priorities. And that priorities to make yourself feel better to assert more control. 
when you actually have an illusion of control and not the reality of it. The illusion of inclusion. You have people that walk around that want to be in charge of everything or in control and they're not even qualified to do so. But they have that insecurity and that's motivation enough for them to double down to try to assert themselves in a capacity of control. Because it all comes down to an insecure person is the one that you will more than likely find always fighting to be in control of a situation, whether it's a relationship, whether it's on the job, whether it's somewhere else. Now, here's the thing. That insecurity could be warranted or unwarranted. Take, for instance, you have an insecure person that's in charge of something. And some of you face this on the job where you had that insecure manager that just got into management and doesn't really know what they're doing. And you always have that one employee that's been there so many years and he's saying, oh, management needs to do this. The guy doesn't know what he's doing, et cetera, et cetera. But then there may be another insecure employee who knows exactly what to do. And the reason why they're insecure is because they don't trust the judgment and leadership of that person that's in charge. And this person who's insecure is qualified more so than a manager. And they would try to be the one to influence that manager and to control the situation. While that other employee who has experience, who's complaining, but doesn't have the qualifications, does just that, complain. Again, they don't want the issue resolved. They just want to complain because it makes them feel better. They feel in control complaining. Makes them feel as though they're some kind of authoritarian figure. You know, it's like the armchair quarterbacks when it comes down to these pundits on TV. You choose your favorite one because that person is your champion. Now, In closing, the only thing I want you to remember from this particular segment is this. You need to check the triggers that will prompt you to make irrational things or irrational actions based on unwarranted fear, such as not being in control. Again, life is a host of controllable circumstances that you will have to contend with through it. It's not something that's laid out in a map. It's something you have to understand that you will have to constantly adjust to. The thing is, it's not to preempt or overreact when you don't need to. That's what gets you in trouble. More in a moment, folks.
Hi everyone, Jocelyn with you here. We're going to talk about the emotional heuristic when it comes to making judgments, when it comes to making decisions. Now, here's the thing. A heuristic basically is not necessarily an accurate 100% on-the-spot assessment of what things will be, could be, should be. They're just a guesstimate. Now, here's the thing I will tell you. With this, we have three ways that we usually make decisions and risk assess as well. And that has to do with, one, we deal with um, our gut feeling, two, we deal with our emotions, and three, we deal with the logic of things. So, with these three categories, what are the distinctions? Well, Many relationships, we go with a gut feeling on things, right? Um, yeah, he says he doesn't smoke anymore, but I don't believe him. You just got that feeling. You don't have anything justified. You don't have any facts, any proof. You really don't have any emotional bearing on that. This is more or less what inside of you you think is going on. Now, emotionally, you may already have this perception and this is a little bit different in the sense that this person could very well be not even close to what you're thinking. But emotionally, you're envisioning this. The thing is, though, with the gut instinct, you don't have proof and you're waiting for proof in order to justify your judgment. On an emotional side, you've already convinced yourself that this is indeed happening. On the logical side, you need the proof in order for it to be, of course, valid. Now, the difference is, on the logical side, you're unbiased. And that's the difference. It's a non-biased approach to your assessment of the person. So you have these three things going with you. Now, when I go and tell you about the four questions about who are you, what is your purpose, strengths and weaknesses, and what... uh, or your future intentions. It also depends on how you apply that in correlation to those three methods that you can use. Now, the fact-based method, which of course was the last one that we talked about in that series, is one that would involve the logic. Basically, tell me about yourself. Everything has to add up. And whatever you tell us is factual. And therefore, we take it to heart. And we make a decision based on that. And we correlate our past experiences and references to that situation. Now, if you're going on an emotional appeal with this, what that would mean is as that person answers those four category of questions, you're not really so concerned about it. You're taking everything at face value and you're believing it as they're saying it. Now, the other thing, when it comes down to the intuitive side of things, even though this person is telling you what they're telling you, you believe them with an air of skepticism. You're giving them the benefit of the doubt. On the last one, you're being not so biased. So if that person tells you whatever they tell you about themselves, then you're like accepting it and saying, okay, 
Well, this is it. But you're making a mental note to make sure that what they're saying will definitely add up. Now, the two between the cognitive reasoning of it and the uh, actual intuition of it may cross-section a bit. The only difference is you don't have a bias on the third as you do on the first one. See, on the first one with the intuition, you're going to have a bias because you believe something about that person upon meeting them. And in some cases, they'd have to prove you different. Or in other cases, they would have to reaffirm what you believe. Now, as you go down this list of things, you will kind of make the correlation. It all depends on which approach you use. Now, the risk that's associated with making a poor choice with this person varies for certain people. And therefore, certain things may have more of a priority than others. Like a person may focus more on what's your intentions, the future of the relationship, more so than the character of the person, more so than the purpose, more so than the strengths and weaknesses. Others may focus more as far as a risk on the strengths and weaknesses. In other words, they are uh, focused on someone that will help shore up their weaknesses where they can shore up their weaknesses and vice versa. If you have a strength, this person has a weakness and they could work together and, and interwork with each other. Now, some may focus on the purpose. What drives this person? That's important to them. If this person doesn't have any motivation or any drive, that's a big risk to them. The person may not know who they are when it comes down to character. And that can definitely be a, a deal breaker or a non-starter. Some people may have all four categories that are priorities. And so they'd have to contend with that. So it all depends. But in any case, what you have to understand too is that depending on your approach will dictate your tolerance and your acceptance of that person. Now, the latter one is a little bit no, a little bit more non-biased. However, the first one and the last one, you will be a little bit more rigid holding that person to that standard. Under the emotional side of it, you will not. It's just something where you do the checks and balances. So you can choose exactly how thorough you need to be with it. Because that's going to make you feel a little bit more comfortable in your decision. I can tell you that a lot of you that have tried this have used the emotional side of it. And when you did it, you allowed a lot of things to pass that shouldn't have passed. That's the reason why you wound up burned. That's the reason why you wound up hurt. Now, a lot of people don't like to be judged. You have to get out of that mindset. You have to judge a person. You have to make a decision because you got to assess your risk. Let's take, for instance, let's go through the risk assessment of these quickly. Take, for instance, a person can't really define themselves, can't tell you what they like, can't tell you about their personality, can't tell you anything. That's a big risk because that means that you could go into that relationship and literally make that person be who you want them to be because they don't have a backbone to be anybody else. 
Now, you can go on down to the second group. When it comes down to purpose, they don't have a purpose. That means they have no drive, no vision. You can create that drive for that person. Now, would you really want that in a relationship? Third one, that person may not have any uh, weaknesses. They'll probably say something like that. Well, you know that person's lying right off the bat. Are you willing to take a risk with a liar? When it comes down to a situation when they're talking about future intentions, would you trust someone that has no vision for the future? They're only living in the now. And it's up to you to make that decision. I personally don't like living with now people. I found that now people are very reckless, very improvisational, and usually these people wind up on their asses when they're older. It's just been my experience dealing with them. Because these people are going with whatever opportunities available at the time. And if there are no opportunities available, they'll fall on their asses and say, okay, well, this is what I deserve. So this is the reason why you go through that assessment process. To break it down evenly, let me just break it down a little bit easier. In essence, a person who's intuitive in their process and their theory going down this, uh, these four questions, think of it this way. They're going through these four questions with a fixed answer in their head already about that person. And what they're looking for is congruency to what they have already fixed in their head about this individual. When it comes down to the emotional side of going down using the same process, they don't hold this person accountable for anything and accept them for whatever they provide. Now, the last one is non-biased, but what this person will do is accept everything at face value and later hold this person accountable for the things that they claimed that they had uh, come up with. So you have these three approaches. And I can tell you right off the bat, a lot of you use the second one, the emotional approach. You don't do that much vetting. And that's what this process is. And these are the ways that you vet people. You could do it just from your gut instinct. You could do it emotionally, what you feel like this person may be doing or letting them influence you by what they're saying to you. Or you may be that other person that's non-biased and you're letting them say something. And a lot of times you're letting them hang themselves just in case they lie to you. So what do you have? First one is bias. Second one is non-bias. The other one, I mean the third one, the last one is non-bias. And the third one, there are no requirements whatsoever. That's the difference. You got bias, void, and then you have non-bias. And that's just the way it is. Now, I know a lot of you are probably saying, man, I'm not going to be doing all that shit. I'm just going to go in there and just start dating someone. Okay, go ahead and do it. The only thing I'm telling you is this. If you don't have some kind of structure as far as assessing the person that you're about to date, good luck to you. If you failed in the past in relationships and you have not modified your behavior in some kind of way or some kind of standards, 
you're going to wind up again in that same situation. This is just to help you. These are tools to help you. That's all they are. But it's up to you. See, the whole thing is with an emotionally driven person in general, what happens is they have a narrative already in their heads. And they're not setting the expectations for that other person to meet that narrative because in their head, that person met it just on face value. See, with the person who's more intuitive, they have that narrative in their head to a certain degree, but they're looking for congruency to that narrative. Got the difference? One person, the emotional side, the person on the other side of the relationship would never have to measure up. On the intuitive side, there would have to be some congruency or some way of measuring up. Now, the third one is non-biased, meaning that that person will go and present themselves. And then from there, you make the assessment as to whether or not they have actually met the mark on everything that they said. But you're not doing it in a way where you have a presumption of anything. That one is the hardest one to do. And really, that one is the most favorite one to have. Because in that way, when you make your assessment of that person, you're making a fair and just assessment of them. You're not going with the other two. Well, you're not going with the bias on both sides. You're just going with what you initially established. As far as, I'm going to be non-biased. We're going to go through this. And if he doesn't measure up, oh well. Plain and simple. That's the way you go about it. And see, a lot of times people don't like doing this because it's too much work. It's TMW. Of course, it's going to be too damn much work because you've been lazy in many of your relationships in the past where you haven't had to do anything. You haven't had to do any work, and that's the reason why you wound up losing. That's the reason why you wound up in relationships that were totally dysfunctional. See, one thing that I learned throughout the years, when I got into relationships, I always had a plan and strategy for me and my partner. And I shared that with them and got their input on it in order to construct something that would be representative of our both, both interests. So we had an actual breakup strategy if things didn't work. Yes, we had a contingency for that. I told you about my marriage, me and my ex-wife. We had already talked about how we were gonna structure a breakup if we were to divorce. So it wouldn't be any animosity, any acrimony. We would just do it and we could still coexist as two people and still be friendly with each other in court. And we worked that out where that was the case. We never lost that respect during the marriage. We never lost that respect during the divorce. Now, could we have made it? It would have taken a lot of work, but the circumstances didn't prevail what we could make it. And we both agreed on that. And so there was no problem. No harm, no foul. See, a lot of people expect people who give relationship advice to be an expert, a guru, a relationship doctor. You name the title. You have all these people out here on TikTok, YouTube, trying to profess all these different things. What you have to come to grips with is this. What you have to come to grips with is there are no experts. 
You could have somebody who's been married 50 years don't mean a damn thing because they've had that relationship with that person. They haven't been out there with other people. So they know that person very well and they can tell you what worked for them. I see that's the distinction. I'm the guy that tells you what worked for me and what didn't work for me and where I messed up. See, a lot of them don't talk about where they made mistakes. They only point the finger at other people. But I'm just as guilty as anyone else when it comes down to failing at relationships. There's no difference. So if you're expecting perfection, forget it. You never find it. There's not one of them out there that have a perfect relationship. They'll present that to you. There was one couple that used to be on YouTube and boy, they had hundreds of thousands of followers. Then eventually, the woman got caught with an underage guy and then all went to hell. What I'm getting at is you have to look at yourself, look at what you want, respect and love yourself first before you get your ass out there on a dating scene with anyone and have your standards, your rules. And I've given you three approaches that you can use at vetting a person. Person, I think the last one is the best one, the non-biased vetting process where you're logical and you're letting this person talk about themselves to tell you, you ask the question. So tell me about yourself. How's your personality? Tell me about your personality and your sense of humor. They should be able to rattle that off to you. These things you want to know. You want to know about them. You don't want to know about what they drive, what they own, where they live, how much money they make. All that's irrelevant because that does not make them a decent person. The only thing that makes them is somebody that's got the resources. But you still got to deal with the person that has those resources. That's what you have to keep in mind. We get so fixated on the result of being with someone wealthy that we fail to realize that we need to be with someone who cares about you, who loves you, who does not look at you as a commodity or some kind of object that they purchased. It would be refreshing for that for many of you ladies. Now, we're going to talk more in just a minute about another subject that has uh, also reared its ugly head. Marlene writes the following. I'm 48 years old. My boyfriend is 23. And he recently went to Vegas and cheated on me with a prostitute. I have some issues with that. Apparently he and his buddies went to some brothel out there near Vegas. And the only thing I can say is, I don't think I could ever sleep with them again. I found out through a third party and now that I know, I confronted him about it. First he denied it, then he told the truth. I've made the mistake of moving him in. We've been together now for about a year. Things have been pretty good, 
and my daughters are saying he has to go. They never liked him from day one. I have a daughter that's 22 and another one that's 23. And they, needless to say, had a serious problem with me dating someone so young. They thought he was ugly and didn't want to have nothing to do with them. I've dealt with some other injustices in my relationship with him. At one point, he has tried to be with my daughters, and I overlooked that. So it's only right that I let him go now. I've really gone to my wit's end with him, and I don't think I can go anymore. I'm going to get someone that's closer to my age. But the question I have to ask you, why do men prefer whores and prostitutes over good, wholesome women that really love them? Marlene, let me tell you something. You will find a lot of successful men that will deal with prostitutes and whores over a good woman. Here's why. One thing, it would take them too long to find out whether she's a good woman or not. With a prostitute, the guy pays up front with no expectations and he doesn't have to worry about child support payments or her getting pregnant. It's convenient. He's only taking care of a need. She's not going to get pregnant because she's operating a business, so in that way it works out for them. Now, most of the women in Vegas, or not really Vegas, Pahrump or wherever, because in Clark County, prostitution is illegal, so they're more than likely with the Pahrump or somewhere. I think over to Sherry's Ranch or whatever it is. Here's the thing. Those women have LLCs. In other words, they have their own company, their private contractors, while they work at those brothels. So the last thing they're concerned with is actually getting pregnant by someone. They're more concerned about, hey, how can I get this money before I get too old? Their biggest challenge is to get as much money as they can before they age. Now, here's the thing. for you. Your daughters were right. They were too close to your daughter's age. He was, in particular. So, that means his peers were around, probably. And I'm sure they probably tried to make overtures towards your daughter, both of them. And you have to understand, I'm willing to bet you that what you probably did with this is put your foot down and said, I'm the mom and whatever I say goes. And apparently, your daughters have seen you make bad mistakes before in the past. And if so, this is just another one. And they probably formed an opinion about you, even though they love you. But they may not trust your judgment as well. Now, this is not to stir any dissension between you and your daughters. But here's the thing you have to come to grips with. He went to Vegas to be with a woman that was different from you. I'm willing to venture that she's more than likely younger than you are. And she's probably not the mommy figure that you may be perceived as by him. And another thing, too, is that if you get away with it, 
Now, what I would tell you is this. Being that you're 48, almost 50 to be pretty soon, you should start thinking about something that's more constructive for your future. There's an element missing that you haven't addressed in your own personality to be with a man so young. And I'm willing to bet you what it is, you're reminded every day when you walk around your house and see your daughters. You had to spend and sacrifice your life for them. And in turn, I can only assume that what you've probably done here is when they had objections to you dating this younger man, you say, to hell with your opinion, I've already sacrificed for you. I'm going to get what I want. I'm going back to my 20s and relive those years. But relive them as a quote-unquote single woman in a sense. Well, see, that's the price you pay for having a family. You forfeit that time that you would be outside the relationship or the relationship. And a lot of people find that very complex because they want the cake and eat it too. I'll never forget, a lady told me that she had a child at 15. And the reason why she did that was because by the time she was 30, that child would be 15, and she would feel as though she would be young enough to still pursue her life as a woman who was still desired by men. She'd already had a child, and she said the way she looked at it, she wasn't going to have any more children, so then she would move on to enjoy the rest of her life with choosing the proper man she wanted. Well, initially, she thought that that was a good idea at 15. By the time she got to 30, however, what she didn't count on was that she was running into a lot of difficulty finding a man that took her seriously. They treated her as if she was just a one-off. I'll go try to sleep with her and that's it. The daughter had a lot of resentment. The father was young when she had her. Father was never in the picture throughout all those years. And now she's trying to figure out why her daughter is so angry. But see, this was a selfish mindset, but she grew up in a household where her mother had heard her at 14. So it was established as a norm in their family for women to have children at a very young age. And they were actually fostering this false sense of adulthood. Now, this is a legacy that could have very well been passed down through the generations in their family. Back in the 1800s, it was not uncommon for a woman to be married at 14 and have a husband that's 40. And that sounds twisted. But this was something that happened. This was something that occurred. And some traditions don't die. 
They just get passed on generation after generation after generation after generation. And it becomes a form of normalcy. And I know it's hard for some people to even consider something like this happening. But this is what actually does happen with some people. You look at other countries in the Middle East, there are some countries where they take brides at age eight and nine. And these men are in their forties to groom these girls. Twisted. You look at what happened in Afghanistan. Those that were left behind, some of them were so poor that they literally had to sell their children. One woman sold her daughter while the daughter was still breastfeeding her and the daughter was only like about a few months old. And she had already sold this child for food. You hear a lot of people talk about sex trafficking. Where do you think a lot of these people are coming from? A lot of these people are coming from countries that are war-torn, like Afghanistan and other countries where people are so desperate they'll be willing to sacrifice another human being for their own livelihood. And we have to think about this. Oh, but there are a lot of other things that are happening now throughout the world. Such as the dogs part. But besides that, you look at what's happening when it comes down to look at what when it comes down to things such as what's happening in Mexico now with the reporters and the journalists. They just killed a beautiful young lady recently. She was found south of Mexico roadside. And there has been an influx of that going on. So these are things we have to look at, folks. Because what I'm getting at is there's a lot of uncertainty. A lot of things that are going on. And the ladies have to be vigilant now because there's a lot of stuff that's happening. For some reason, especially if you're in Mexico City in Mexico, female journalists, you have to be very careful. There's no doubt about it. As you know, the show reaches different parts of the world and I wanted to make sure that they remain vigilant because this is definitely a threat. You have a lot of refugees going into Romania now from the Ukraine, going into Hungary, going into Poland. And we have to consider a lot of them are men and women, mainly women, because most of the men there, if you're 18 and older, they are, of course, making you stay in Ukraine so you can help fight the Russians. Hopefully the situation can be resolved soon. Because we know that this whole thing with Russia and the Ukraine was manufactured by Putin. Without a doubt. So, 
make sure you hold them in your prayers. Now, I hope that answers your question, ma'am, about the situation with the young man that you were with and the prostitute. Let's go on here. Okay, Harry writes the following. Hey, man, if you ever get a chance to come up to Duluth, Minnesota, let me know. It's cold as hell up here, but we'll be more than glad to welcome you. Anyway, I want to just share a couple of things with you. I met a black girl out of Minneapolis, and I moved her up here with me. She and I are really getting things going. We have chemistry, and I thought for sure that she would never come to Duluth. She's been the apple of my eye and the girl of my dreams. She's really been everything I've always wanted. Here is my problem. It's my ex-wife. I'm 52. My ex-wife is 47. And she has a problem with my new girlfriend. One, because of her age, because she's 23. And the other, because she's black. She's a very dark-skinned woman, but I love her to death. My wife is more upset that I decided to go with her as opposed to another white woman. He has wife here. I guess he meant to say ex. We've had a few arguments over the phone about this. When she first saw her, when she dropped the kids off, there was an issue. She never let me live that down. Now her family members and friends are calling, bombarding me with phone calls about getting the woman out of the house, threatening not to let my kids come over to visit because she's a black woman. For the first time in my life, I've actually thought about giving my wife full custody and just paying child support and say the hell with it. This woman is far better than anything my wife could have ever been in my life. I hate to say that she's the mother of my children, but it's true. Mm. I'm just reading some of the other stuff here, but I can't read it on air because it's very private and personal. But one thing that I will say, sir, is that um, you have definitely made a choice, to say the least. And I can see why you made that choice just from what you've written, and I'm not going to repeat that on air. Now, here's the thing that I will say to you. Since you've made that choice, you'll probably have to go back to court and grapple with the whatever kind of arrangements that you have. That's for you and your family courts and for you and your wife to decipher. The problem is your wife has not moved on. She's only into your life because she can't find anyone else. What she really prefers, and this is what I've found in many instances when people break up or get divorced, they don't want their former partner to be with someone else because they want to still have the creative license to go in and still have sex with them and be intimate with them, even though they don't have a relationship anymore. The reason being, they're afraid to trust anyone new in that department. So they would rather stick with 
but it's been tried and true. Now, the downside to this, of course, is that after a while, when one of the partners decide to get with another party, that may taper off. In some cases, it does not. I went out on a date with a lady one time, and what she actually wanted me to accept was her still seeing her ex-husband, even though he was married, and still try to retain a relationship with me. Well, the answer was hell no. And she looked at me like I had five heads, as if something was wrong with me not accepting that. And of course, the first thing she went to was how attractive she was, how fine she was, as if there was going to be an incentive. Now, she wouldn't let go. And this is a problem with most relationships. When they break up, one party may not want to let go. And they hang on. And they hang on for a while until they are confident that that other party doesn't want them. There was a lady that wrote me. They broke up in November 2019. This man drove by her house until March of 2020, dropping off flowers, leaving messages on her door. Now, she was very patient. She didn't get a restraining order against him because she thought it was harmless. He hadn't done anything to really provoke her. But she retained all those things. And when she wrote me, the problem she was having at that time was this guy was doing this and she started dating again. When they got home after the date, there was this love letter in the door. She couldn't hide it because her new suitor saw it. And she went and put it on the coffee table and it still annoyed her that this guy was still dropping notes off at her house. Well, one day what happened, he stayed over the night and this gentleman had written a note and left a bottle of wine on her doorstep. The boyfriend, actually hearing somebody at the front door, opens it. They meet face to face. The guy acts like he saw a ghost and he runs down the stairs. He tells her what happened. And at that point, she was embarrassed. He wanted to know about this other guy. And she was very reluctant in telling him And she wrote me to find out how she should start the conversation talking about this ex that still was infatuated with her. Because she didn't want to scare off the new guy. And I told her to tell him the truth. Now, here's something that most ladies know. When they sleep with a guy, after they've slept with him once or twice, and the guy didn't kick her out of bed or didn't find it, you know, where he just put his clothes on and leave. A lot of women feel as though at that point they have the guy so they can tell him and level with him about certain things that she didn't tell him about in the beginning of the relationship. That's not an uncommon thing. Because at that point, she feels as though she's comfortable enough to do it. And one thing to keep in mind, ladies, if you're comfortable enough to fart in front of your man after having sex, 
more than likely you're comfortable enough to share things with them that you kind of hid from them in the beginning. And that can be problematic as well. Because we prefer you telling us in the beginning as opposed to letting it fester until the end. Well, folks, on that note, with the dogs barking in the background, I want to say thank you for listening. And we'll talk to you on the 24th. Romantic Truth would like to take this opportunity and applaud our listeners and over 40 countries for their support. If you need someone to talk to in regards to help, you may contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255, available 24 hours. All correspondences read on the show have been pre-screened and pre-approved by the submitter to be aired on the show. The views and opinions of this podcast does not reflect those of Romantic Truth, Anchor, Spotify, or any of its affiliates. The opinions expressed are solely those of the host and guests, and should not be deemed as professional guidance, advice, or a professional practice. In the event you may need professional assistance, contact your local federal, state, or county agencies for specific assistance in social services, family counseling, or mental health services. For all medical, legal, and financial services please contact the appropriate licensed and certified professionals within your region. The music that is provided on this podcast that is not provided by Anchor is used under waiver by Jaws and One Music for fair use. Please be advised that the content of this podcast is under copyright by Romantic Truth and James Adams.